Welcome everyone to the Manchester Greenie Deal podcast. I'm Adam Williams and I'm here tonight with Manchester's finest journalist, Alex King. How are you doing, Alex? As ever, a pleasure with you, Ads. How are you? I'm good, mate. Anything caught your eye this week? I suppose it will be old news by the time this goes out in January, I believe. But December has already proven very, very rocky for a new council leader, Bev Craig, who the day before entering office had a, an explosive letter land in Manchester accusing the former leader, Richard Lease, of bullying. Uh, and and his cohorts, I believe, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, their, their general uh, coterie of followers. I don't know if you saw that. I did, yeah, yeah. Um, a shocking read. Do you know what, though? New leaders, it's like it's like drawing line in the sand, so she's got a lot. You, you're right, it's a big deal, but what better time to do a complete and f- thorough investigation on something like that to show your credentials as something new? Do you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's been, it's been, it, it was a bad read. It was horrible to read. But let's see if she can start the leadership in the right way. Um, I, I read that, you know, I read the article she did in The Guardian where yeah. she mentioned how she wants to tackle climate change, which I thought was, you know, she didn't have to say that. Um, so that, that made me hopeful. But we knew it was going to be a big job on all fronts. And so let's see how she does. I think the mood is optimistic, but we'll see. What about Ed Miliband's new role? What's your thoughts on that one? I understand that that has gone from being the business brief to a role solely devoted to net zero and emissions. Is that right? Pretty much, yeah. It's It seems a bit sort of broad. However, yeah. it is broad. You know, this is a... It really, he should be involved in, in everything now. So I wasn't too worried about that about it sounding so broad. And what I really liked was that his very first tweet on the roll, he mentioned about the Green New Deal. Right, that's encouraging. Yeah, really encouraging. So, you know, people can nitpick about, oh, well, what about energy and whatnot? But really, his role should be hardwired into everything. So let's see. Again, he's a genuine guy, but it'll be about how other departments in the Labour Party are open to him sticking his oar in really and saying, listen, show me what you've got there and let's let's work together. So, you know, it's, it's one of them. You've created the role. The role is only as good as the power that they give him, you know, to, to get yeah. on with it. So we'll see. But um, yeah, interesting week. Right, well, for me, the most frustrating part of environmentalism is that often there are never any easy fixes to the problems that we face and solutions can have, that can often feel obvious rarely turn out to be. One such example is the idea of planting trees. The basic formula is that we've cut down far too many and so the obvious solution is to plant a load more and everything will be back in balance. But sadly, this is far from the case. Our guest tonight was the lead author of the paper Pitfalls of Tree Planting Show Why We Need People-Centred Natural Climate Solutions which, as the title states, shows that the idea of just planting loads of trees to save us from catastrophic climate breakdown is a lot trickier and more nuanced than most people realise. So I'm delighted to welcome Associate Professor of Environmental and Natural Resource Policy at the University of Minnesota, Forrest Fleischmann, to help us understand in more detail the findings of his work. Forrest, great to have you with us tonight, mate. Thanks, it's great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, So Forrest, for people that don't know you personally and your work do you want to give the audience a little bit about yourself um you know the work that you do your areas of expertise and also tell us a little bit about the research that goes into a paper that you wrote um to come up with those sorts of findings yeah sure so i'm an associate professor at the university of minnesota for your listeners in the uk minnesota's in the north i live in uh the coldest large city in the US and uh, the North Central region. And I've been here about five years. I teach classes in environmental policy and also in research methods. We have a large forestry program here as well as broader environmental science and policy, uh, natural resource science and management uh, programs. My research has increasingly become dominated by looking at what people sometimes call natural climate solutions, in particular, looking at forest restoration and understanding how it works, 
where it works and what some of the potential problems are. And, and I'll just say that this was not what I originally set out to do. It's something I discovered in doing other research about forestry. And I found I was doing a lot of research in India. And I found that there were a lot of programs in India that, that said that they were you know, benefiting the forest by planting trees. And when I'd go there, I'd either find that in, in some cases that the trees just weren't surviving, or in other cases that the trees that were being planted weren't really as beneficial as it was being made out to be. And then I discovered that this wasn't just a phenomena of a few places that I happened to visit in India, but I started talking to people all over the world who are observing similar phenomena. And that's driven a lot of the work I've done in the last few years. So on Twitter, you attach your paper to the tweet that begins, these days, everyone seems to think that planting trees is an important solution to the climate crisis. They're mostly wrong. Um, now, I really want to go into your paper in detail, but to begin with, can you say what, what the most important aspects of tree planting is that most people are commonly getting wrong, what you describe as pitfalls? A lot of people think that planting trees is the same thing as restoring forests. And it's not. Planting trees is often an important part of restoring forests, but it's not necessarily so. And I always give a really simple example. I live here in a city. I have a fairly small backyard and I have a vegetable garden in my backyard. And when I go in the spring to pull weeds out of my vegetable garden, they're mostly baby trees because there's a few trees in my backyard and they drop their seeds in the spring and they grow like crazy in, in the nice soil of my vegetable garden. So if I wanted to reforest my backyard, I wouldn't need to plant trees. I've got some nice native trees that are planting themselves every year. That's not true everywhere. Some places, either there are no seeds for trees or the seeds that are planting themselves aren't the ones that we want to have. But in many places in the world, we don't need to necessarily plant. It's not the most cost effective. It's cheaper for me to let the trees that are growing on their own grow than it is for me to go out and buy a seedling and dig a hole. At the same time, a lot of times, technologies for planting and growing trees have been developed with the goal of commercial industrial production of trees. And so there was a recent study actually that came out since the study that you're quoting, where they looked at what trees are planted globally. And most trees that are planted globally are either pines or eucalyptus. And there's places where those are native trees that are important parts of the ecosystem. But the reason that those are the most commonly planted is because they're easy to propagate commercially valuable trees. Yeah. There's a lot of, we need wood. And growing wood commercially also has some carbon benefits, depending on exactly how it's done. But oftentimes people think, oh, we're planting trees to restore nature. Well, if we're just planting a bunch of eucalyptus in Brazil or India, where it's not native, and we're planting it in straight rows and we're going to harvest it to make paper every three years or every five years, that's really more like growing corn than it is like what people think of when they think, oh, we're going to restore a forest by planting trees. So planting trees is often not necessary to restore a forest. And it's often also not sufficient because depending on exactly how we're doing it, it might not be compatible with a long-term forest restoration for storing carbon. Um, the first pitfall that stood out for me uh, was that not only is protecting our current ecosystems better than planting trees, uh, but that tree planting campaigns divert funding from this and also don't address the drivers of forest loss. Now, the first part, that's well appreciated, uh, but the second part is quite worrisome. Um, is it that tree planting campaigns don't realise the damage they are doing? Or is there, more, is there a, a more nefarious element to it? As in, who's behind the campaigns and why the silence on the drivers of the forest loss? Is it a profit motive or is it just people getting it wrong? I think it's a mix of both. And it's a little, you know, I'm a scientist, so I always want the evidence. And it's a little hard to track down the evidence. Yeah. But I think, I, I do think that there are people out there who figured out that planting trees 
is going to be less costly for them than not cutting down, you know, the rainforest in the place where they want to grow soybeans or palm oil. And so they, they can say, or for that matter, reducing the emissions from their industrial processes or what have you. And, and so I, I think that there's a lot of people who are very eager to promote tree, tree planting because it's something that seems good and maybe isn't very costly to them in the ways that these other things are. And someone pointed out to me that you can't even really tell if a tree planting worked until five or 10 years later. So yeah. it may even be that some people are going out and promoting this knowing that it's going to be hard to hold them accountable for the outcomes in the way that you can be held accountable if you cut down a, a you know a mature forest and then someone can say you're you're the person who cut this down well i planted these trees and they didn't grow well it wasn't my fault it was because there was a drought right okay now as your paper points out uh, tree plantations sequester far less carbon than natural forests uh, what's the data regarding how much less? And uh, you also state that they sequester carbon less securely. Could you elaborate on that? Those points. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this is a, this is a complicated uh, phenomena because there's a lot of variables involved, and I'm sure some really careful person can come up with an example of a tree plantation that did sequester more carbon than a particular natural forest. But in general, tree plantations tend to have relatively few species and be managed relatively intensively. What that means is that there's going to be less overall canopy cover. And on again, this is speaking on average, more soil disturbance. A lot of, a lot of the carbon that's in a forest is actually not in the trees, but in the soil. In, it really depends on where you are, but in many places it's more than 50%. And in some, you know, peat dominated systems, it can even be 75 or, or 80% of the carbon is in the soil. So the soil disturbance from the management activities where you're going in and cutting, thinning, harvesting, or less so planting, planting doesn't tend to take as much industrial equipment. That, that can really be disruptive. And then because you have relatively few species, you're more vulnerable to something like a pest outbreak. So you can think if you've got a forest with 20 species of trees growing in it and a pest comes in and really starts to hammer one of those. Here where, where we live in the North Central United States, we got a lot of ash trees and there's something called the emerald ash borer that's basically killing all the ash trees. It's a little insect. And you know we've got some forests where ash is a component along with many other species and emerald ash borer isn't just well, it sucks, but it's not that big of a deal. But then we've got some forest types where it's just solid ash trees. And what this means is every single tree on that landscape is dying. So you can imagine if you have a pine plantation and that happens, you're, you're just going to be that much more vulnerable. And it yeah. turns out I mentioned that the most commonly planted species are pine and eucalyptus. And those are species or, or, or groups of species, they're, they're genuses that are tend to be associated with increased fire. Both pine needles and eucalyptus leaves burn very easily. And so planting them in some systems actually increases the incidence of fire in those systems because they tend to propagate fire more when it's lit. They tend to have drier uh, understories with a lot of flammable duff. And so again, by, by emphasizing the species that are often planted, we may be increasing the vulnerability of those planted forests to fire. That's not going to be true in every situation. The flip side and the reason why there might be some situations in which plantations might be store more carbon would be it depends on what you do with what you harvest from that plantation. So if you think about like I live in a hundred year old house made of wood, probably it's made out of pine because that's what people were building with back then in this part of the US. Well, the pine in that tree that was cut down 100 years ago, that's stored long term. This house will probably, this is a really nice little house. It'll probably last another 100 years. But other trees might be cut down to make paper. And a lot of paper, you know, I get junk mail 
and I put it in the trash, then it goes into a landfill and it decomposes, that carbon isn't really stored at all. So depending on what you do with the plant, with what you're harvesting out of the plantation, you might end up getting a plantation that looks a a lot better. The key idea being, can you put it into a long-lived endurant wood product like a building? And in those situations, any wood wood processing is gonna gonna look better for 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 long term carbon storage. So that would be the one place where I'd see potentially a plantation that that's being part of a system where we're using the wood to build long lived buildings. That might be a situation in which you might get a better profile from planting trees. Yeah, forest, fascinating insight onto the unintended negative consequences of tree planting and the difference between tree planting and reforestation i noticed just to move away on the onto the pure numbers say assuming that you know in an ideal world um all of our natural based solutions uh could draw down 18 gigatons of carbon every year and as a planet we are currently emitting 30 to 40 gigatons of carbon a year Does that mean to say that tree planting, even in a hypothetically ideal scenario, wouldn't even come close to mitigating climate change and therefore purely based on the numbers? I mean, that that in itself tells a story. We can't solely rely on natural based solutions. I I find a convenient way to think about this. It's not it's not the rigorous math, but it's it's a nice representation of the rigorous math somewhere between a fifth and a quarter of all historical carbon emissions come from land use change, much of which is deforestation, but it could also be uh, plowing up grasslands, which also releases a lot of carbon and various other uh, draining peat lands um, is is another really big one. Um, So I think when we think about natural climate solutions, we could think about removing that historical barrier is probably about as good as we're going to get. So if we if we took all the land that's been converted into agriculture and urbanization, which I would note is is a really kind of impossible scenario, because that would mean not having places for people to live or have agriculture. But if we took all that land, we might undo a quarter to a fifth of all of the historical accumulation of, of, of carbon in, in the atmosphere. So I, I think that's a nice way to think about what we can do with this. That's mm-hmm. very significant. A quarter to a fifth is a big, big number and a big piece of this problem. But it's also compared to the other three quarters, which is mostly emissions from fossil fuels, it's small. Yeah, really well put. And you touched on the question of land use and the limitations on land. I wonder if you could expand on that to kind of provide us with a sense of how much land we need to release, to to change in its usage, to have any any chance of mitigating this disaster. Like, are there going to be some tough choices about what we use land to do? Really tough choices coming. Um, And the problem is, Sometimes you'll see descriptions that say, uh, well, there's all this land that is sort of degraded land that we can restore, and that will lead to more more natural-based climate solutions, more storage of carbon. And we've tried to look into some of these numbers that have come out. I'm working on a project right now where we're looking at some of these numbers. And we looked at a, at a, a research paper that was published last year that said, here are sort of the high priority areas. And they identified all the agricultural land in the Philippines as a high priority area for climate, for climate mitigation, planting trees. And so I think that's, you know, there's, I, I don't know, actually know off the top of my head, the population of the Philippines, I'm gonna say maybe it's about 50 million. <laughs> Me not. Um, you know, I think a lot of those people are farmers. I don't know how many have never been to the Philippines, but we've got to think, well, what are those people going to do if we take away all their land to grow trees on it to mitigate climate change? What are they going to eat? What are they going to do instead of farming that land? That's a tough choice. 
it's convenient that that example of the Philippines is because often we're talking about natural climate solutions as a way to mitigate emissions that happened in the United States or the United Kingdom, wealthy countries. And then we say, oh, well, there's these natural climate solutions. We can take away all these farmers' livelihoods in our former colony in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. The Philippines is a former U.S. colony, and we were quite brutal to, the, to the, the, the country or the people of the Philippines for several decades as colonists. Um, yeah. not, not fundamentally different from the, the history of other co colonial powers. And then we're going to go in there and say, hey, we need all this land now to store our emissions. Um, so that becomes a really tricky problem. Now, the hopeful side of this is in a country like the Philippines, there's a lot of potential for agroforestry. Mm -hmm. Agroforestry means growing tree crops. So, you know, instead of having a rice paddy, we could have a mango tree. And that's going to, a mango tree will store more carbon than a rice paddy. And, and so that's kind of hopeful, like, oh, well, we can really scale up this agroforestry and that will help. I think that's true, but there's still trade-offs. In general, agroforestry is going to store less carbon than a natural forest. It'll store more carbon than a rice paddy or a wheat field or what have you. But if, if we're talking about a mango orchard or any kind of fruit orchard, if you've been to a fruit orchard, you know, the trees are kind of widely spaced and there's grass in between them to give each tree the best growing condition versus a natural forest where they're all kind of dense. And the other thing that I worry about is, well, how much mangoes do people eat compared to how much rice? I can tell you, one day I was in India and I found a really good mango tree. And my friend and I were like, it was in an abandoned lot. Like no one was picking the mangoes. And we picked, we went home with like 30 mangoes. And we're like, we're just going to eat mangoes today. This is paradise. And we both got really bad diarrhea. I mean, there's a reason why people don't eat. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, people, you know, maybe some people could eat some mangoes instead of some rice, but we still need rice. Yeah. So, so there's really hard trade-offs involved in thinking about where are we going to do this? And I think when, when I look at it, I'm not one of the people who makes these big quantitative global models, but when I look at them, I come away with the idea, a lot of these estimates are overly optimistic about how much land we can use without having severely negative consequences for people that mean that, and often, you know, the Philippines is not going to reforest 90% of their agricultural land. It's just not going to happen. No. They might be able to do agroforestry on 20% and find 5 or 10% that's really not very productive that people would rather grow trees on. And that's big. It's not nothing, but it's smaller than what, what a lot of people are saying. For the record, there are 110 million uh, people in the Philippines, as is just WhatsApp me. That news just in. Yeah, on the old <laughs> Google machine. Yeah, 110 million people. So twice as bad as you thought. <laughs> yeah, so Forrest, uh, one of the things that you've highlighted in the paper as well, which I think is really important, and it, it's kind of got a... It's a negative, but also potentially a positive, and that is the neglect of management of these of these projects. So it it seems like a lot of the funding and a lot of the effort and hard work is is front loaded to get these trees planted and whatnot. And and as your paper points out, the management aspects of it, the long term management aspects of these projects, is just as important. Now, the negative is that it's not happening, which is a negative. But if it was to happen. And if we start thinking about, you know, obviously we're part of the thinking around Green New Deals and maybe post-climate catastrophe if we can somehow survive. But, you know, I'm looking at that and thinking of, of a whole industry where people can be trained, you know, and we can take really serious and become custodians of, of the land um, I'm really seeing that's maybe a hopeful aspect of, of this, where if we if we target this correctly and put enough funds into it, um, there is potential there, is there not, for thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, of jobs worldwide on the management side of, of doing these projects correctly? 
I, I think that's true. Uh, one of the things I worry about a lot, um, so I, I, I really borrowed this idea, I should say, from a scientist in, 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 in Kenya at the World Agroforestry Center named Lisa Daguma. I've never met him, but I really like this phrase. He put it out. He said, well, we need to talk less about tree planting and more about tree growing. So as I said at the beginning, maybe, maybe you don't need to plant the tree. Maybe I can just let that seedling in my, in my backyard grow. But I, I, need to, I need to do something to let it grow. My backyard is also full of rabbits and they eat everything. So I need to protect that little baby tree from those rabbits. And then maybe when it's bigger, I need to prune it somehow so it'll grow the, the right shape so it'll, it'll be yeah, healthy absolutely, in my yeah. backyard. And so one of the things I've observed in India where I've worked a lot is people, some people like planting trees because they say, well, we get employed to plant the trees. You know, the, the government comes to plant these trees and we get, we get two days of work to plant the trees. And we're poor people. We need some money. It's good. We, we got a few hundred rupees. Well, wouldn't it be better if instead of getting a few hundred rupees once, we had a few people who were working continuously over a long time, they had a job of maintaining these, these trees over long time frames. And I'll tell you, we, we've done study, a study in one part of India that found a lot of these plantations just aren't working. They're not leading to tree growth. And having that kind of long-term investment in maintaining and managing these plantations would increase success, and there'd be some people who'd be employed by that. So I do think that that's a hopeful thing. Forrest, the namesake of this podcast, the Manchester Green New Deal podcast, obviously hails back to the original New Deal in America under Franklin D. Roosevelt. And I think there's quite a lot of historiographical consensus on him being a big environmentalist, being the so-called forester-in-chief in the US. Could you maybe shed some light on his passions for environmentalism, how that informed the original New Deal and whether there's anything that any lessons that has for a Green New Deal, uh, either positive or negative. Yeah, so I actually, um, my parents gave me a book a few years ago. I believe the author is Douglas Brinkley. Douglas Brinkley, yeah. Yeah, he's a famous historian and he has a book and I, I, I don't have the book on, on this part of my office, so I don't remember the title of it, but it's about Franklin Roosevelt as an environmentalist. And, you know, Roosevelt, he grew up, he was rich. He lived in like a country estate outside of New York City. And his whole childhood, he was just running around in nature. That's yeah. what he did. He was hunting, he was fishing, he was playing, he was bird watching. And then, um, you know, he, he got polio. He was kind of crippled. And the thing that kind of rescued him, he was really depressed. The thing that rescued him is one of his friends was like, come to Florida, let's go bird watching. And he got excited again. He got excited about life again. So he was really like, the thing he cared about the most was nature. And um, he had piloted some programs, first as a private wealthy citizen, and then as governor of New York, in which he basically got young people to go out and, and, and experience nature. I think a lot of the programs were kind of focused on poor kids from New York City who might not otherwise have contact with nature. Let's get them out into the country and, uh, and, and get them into contact with nature. And then when he became president, he, he turned that into a group called the Civilian Conservation Corps, which was like an employment work program for, for, for Im impoverished youth. And yeah. they would go out and they built uh, every, pretty much every nice old national park or state park in the U.S. You'll go and there'll be like a picnic shelter or a cabin or something. And there'll be a sign that this was built by the Civilian Conservation Corps. They built lots of really durable uh, recreate, outdoor recreation infrastructure. They also planted trees. And I have been looking and looking for an evaluation of their tree planting programs. And I just can't find data about it. I don't know if they planted trees in the right places or not. The only thing I know is near my home uh, where I grew up, which was in Massachusetts, there was a bunch of, of plantations of a non-native pine species. And we were always told that they were planted by the Civilian Conservation Corps. And they were like really unhealthy. And so I've always been a little skeptical, like maybe they didn't do it right, that's okay. It was, it was a long time ago and maybe they didn't know any better, 
Um, it was 90 years ago. Maybe they didn't know any better. They were doing the best that they could. And maybe that was just that one place. And maybe that's a story I heard as a kid. So maybe my information is wrong. But I think one of the lessons there um, is about building this connection with nature, because one of the effects that the Civilian Conservation Corps is said to have had is you got hundreds of thousands of predominantly urban youth going out and camping in nature. And they, I've read books about the Civilian Conservation Corps, and what they emphasize is they go, they went and did interviews, say, in the 1950s and 60s with the alumni of, this, of these programs. They said, oh, yeah, that's where I learned to go camping, and now I take my kids camping all the time, and I'm passionate about the environment. That's really the seed of a later environmental movement in the U.S., and I think if, if there's opportunities to provide those kind of um, learning opportunities to young people, particularly impoverished urban young people who might otherwise just be playing with their phones or trying to make a living in an urban environment and get them out there, I think that's very valuable for any place in the world. I think there's a lesson there. Forrest, I really want to talk about um, the effects on the global south, and I know that you've been to India and stuff, but just before we do, um, I have read a story recently about an ancient Japanese technique of, of uh, growing trees out of other trees. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's a 600-year-old Japanese technique. Um, it's called, I'm going to obviously get this name completely wrong, but it, it's like Daisungi. And the idea is that you sort of these particular trees and they grow trees off those trees and they, they grow really straight and high and they use those trees that they grow off them for their for their wood. Is it a technique that you've ever heard of before? It's just I read it the other day and it really blew my mind. I, I think I've read about this before, and um, but I'm not very knowledgeable. But what I'll say is a lot of places in the world have really interesting legacies and knowledge of how to reforest. Um, you know, something I noticed, I've only been to the UK, I guess, twice. Uh, and, but something I noticed there is there's all these trees, like these hedgerows. Yeah. And oftentimes the trees are cut off at a certain height and then they're regrowing very bushily. Yeah. And I've read that that's something that that's a similar, that dates back thousands of years. People have been doing that in the UK for thousands of years. And it's a system for managing trees that makes them really productive for, I don't, I don't, again, I'm not an expert on that. Yeah. I've seen the same thing in India, in Mexico, where I've worked. Um, I've worked in the, in the ancient, the, the, the Mayan region of Mexico and people use shifting cultivation. They burn a plot of land and grow corn there for a year or two, and then they let it reforest. Yeah. And people used to think this was kind of primitive. It turns out that they're really sophisticated about what they're doing. They know which trees they're going to try to get to regrow in there. Oftentimes, the areas, there's whole patches of forest in, in southern Mexico that are all fruit trees. And the trees are hundreds of years old. Where did that come from? Yeah. Well, the people were doing that. Yeah, so, often. So all over the world, there's indigenous knowledge and local yes. knowledge about how to do things that are really effective ways of managing forests and trees. Yeah, I was going to say that it always seems to be, not just in tree planting, but in all manner of environmental issues. If you go back to sort of indigenous learning, it's very often that, that they'll have a, a more holistic and natural way of dealing with, I mean, look at the, the way that they deal with fires. Um, some of the indigenous groups, these these wildfires, and they do some sort of burning, don't they? And it stops it stops their area from setting fire. Absolutely ingenious, but that oh, that does seem to be sort of a thread throughout environmentalism. I always go back to sort of the local indigenous population, and and there you'll always find sort of a kernel of truth of how to deal with these things. Have you found that on your travels? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I think I mean I think it's important to say that not every locality has that knowledge and sometimes the sure. knowledge isn't the right knowledge we need for the problem we're solving and my experience uh is oftentimes indigenous people are very eager adopters of new techniques and new knowledge as well but the a lot of problems have come um when colonial officials or modern scientists go into a system and say well we know how to do this because we're the experts and they ignore knowledge that 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 it already exists about how to manage the system 
Or, you know, in the examples we were just talking about propagating trees, they're just, there could be a better way to do this. And I know that there's there's foresters in, in the Yucatan Peninsula right now who are European foresters, American foresters, trying to figure out how to grow trees in southern Mexico. And well, you know, have you talked to these indigenous people who've been doing this for 3,000 years? Yeah, <laughs> totally, yeah. Um, so, yeah, if we can move on to sort of the issues around the global south again, which is highlighted in your paper. So uh, could you let our audience know about some of the, the major issues in the global south? And, and let's be clear here, you know, areas in the global south are being targeted for reforestation to mitigate the pollution that's being done in the global north. Now, that in itself just seems really sinister. Um, but, you know, how does it, what on the ground, how does this affect communities in the global south? How do they view the polluters that are predominantly in the global north? And yeah, and if you want to give us some of your experiences around some of the conversations you've had over there. Yeah, so I, I think the first thing to say is there's a biological reason why it, this is targeting the global south, which is by complete, maybe not complete, but basically by coincidence, you know, the places where forests store the most carbon are the humid tropics. So the, the warmer and wetter it is, the more plant growth you're going to get. So if you go to the, you know, the Amazon rainforest, you get lots of rain and it's warm all year round and trees just grow really luxuriantly. They store lots of carbon. And it just so happens for whatever reason that a lot of places that are warm and wet are also poor. You know, there's historical reasons for that. We're not going to get into that today, but that's a fact. So then scientists have said, well, these are the places that should be our priorities. And if you look at any of these priority maps, it's basically a map of, of the tropics. So, you know, countries in tropical Africa, tropical Americas, tropical Asia. And these many of these countries are, are quite poor. And the people who live there often don't have secure land rights for a variety of reasons. And even when they do, oftentimes they're very poor people and, and the countries are not necessarily taking their local needs in, into consideration. So, for example, in India, we find frequently that the um, that the people who who live in and around the forest, their land rights were never really recognized. the The British, when they were there, sort of said, "Well, these people aren't that important, and we're just going to make these government forests so we can prioritize timber production." And the after the British left in 1947 the Indian government did the same thing, the government of independent India. And so these people are dependent on these forests, but they don't have the legal rights to make the decisions about how they're managed. And then someone comes in and says to the government, we're going to give you lots of money to grow trees for carbon here. And the government will take that information. And sometimes it's going to say, well, there's some farmers there, but they're illegal they don't have land rights. And they'll say, these people are squatters. Well, as a matter of historical, that's a, that's a complicated historical claim. You could say that the government is the squatter and it was the one that originally took away the land rights in some cases. But the government comes in there, they're going to plant trees, they're going to manage this for carbon, and they're going to take away the livelihoods of these poor people. That's when you when I get really worried, because this is this is happening all over the world. Um, we have documentation of this happening in many countries. Yeah. It's not that every every project has this, but it, it happens fairly frequently. Yeah. And it means that we precisely as you said it, us rich people who are emitting lots of carbon are trying to mitigate our environmental damage by destroying the lives of poor people. Yeah. And, and that, that's ethically problematic. But the second problem is those poor people might fight back. And they would use what we call the weapons of the weak. And I always say in India, there's a very strong dry season. It's hot, May, 
oh man, in May in India, most of India is just like brutally, brutally hot. It hasn't rained in months. And there's all this dry grass and there's dry tree branches. And let's say one of these farmers who's kind of annoyed that his land was taken away Maybe he's not, maybe he's causing trouble. Maybe he isn't, but he drops his cigarette in that dry grass in that area where the tree was planted. Then there's no more tree plantation there. And that may be one of the reasons why we see discouraging results from India. So it's not just that there's an ethical problem. Someone might say, I don't care about ethics. We need to, it, 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 it might be more of a threat to these poor people to have climate change. That's a, not my claim, but someone might say that. But you're yeah. not going to have a successful re reforestation project if you make enemies out of the people who live next door to it. Yeah, I'm just wondering, is is the um, the attitude on the ground an economic one? I mean, I'm sure it's it's a mixture of, of all sorts, but is it is it pri primarily an economic one? Or is it starting to be now a bit of a climate consciousness where they're saying climate change is happening and it's happening primarily because of the global north. And, or is it a case of, okay, pay us and we'll sort this out and we're happy for you to use our land. If you don't pay us, yeah, we're going to cause trouble. What, what kind of climate consciousness is there over there? I think it's very variable. I mean, I think the first thing I'll say is if you talk to people who work with nature, you know, farmers or anyone like that, you talk to them anywhere in the world, they'll tell you about climate change happening. Um, in the U.S., they all watch Fox News and they'll all say, oh, but it's not climate change. Yeah, you know, it's gotten hotter and drier every year from the last 20 years, but it's not climate change. You'll hear that sometimes in the U.S. But in, yeah. in, in the places I've been, particularly in India and Mexico, everyone says, oh, yeah, the climate is changing. It, every summer is hotter. The rains are less reliable. They all know that's happening. And so they're very aware of it. A lot of them have some knowledge that, that, that trees help. Um, I think that the, the sort of scientific knowledge that I have gets very poorly filtered down to uh, people outside of the science community. So sometimes I hear people explaining it to me in, in, in a village in India or, or Mexico and what, it's a little garbled from what I understand but they understand that trees are important and they have varying degrees of political consciousness about this inequality between the global North and the global South. Um, in, in, in Mexico, I have heard people tell me, Oh yeah, the people from the rich countries are coming for our forests. They're going to take it away from us. I've heard people, people have told me that in Mexico. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I haven't heard that in India. Okay. And, and that may have something to do with, in fact, the who's who's at play in India um, compared to Mexico, who's involved in forestry in India. It's mostly the national government driving forestry. Um, they are influenced by the global things, whereas in the areas I've been in Mexico, there's a lot more of sort of global NGOs coming in and things like that. Um, that's just a coincidence of the places I've worked with. Um, it may also have to do with broader politics. I think Mexico being the neighbor of the U.S. and having a lot of ties to the U.S., I think there's a lot more sort of direct concern with imperialism of today. And I think in India, uh, I think Indians often think of imperialism more as, as something that's part of their history, but maybe sure. not something that's shaping their day-to-day -day lives. Yeah. Just to touch on something you alluded to earlier, Forrest, which was talking about the... Uh, the complexities of tree planting schemes. So you mentioned uh, the fact that it's hard to hold companies to account for tree planting schemes because it's it takes five to ten years for us to be able to assess whether a, you know trees are healthy or whether they're withering away and dying. If I've understood correctly. Similarly, I think is there another kind of sleight of hand here at play with these schemes, which is to say that a lot of these tree planting schemes and credits that are derived from that carbon credits are based on a claim that you are helping prevent the destruction of forests that would have been destroyed and by 
it, rather than actually planting new trees, you're protecting pre-existing ones. But that is actually quite difficult to prove. Is there is there any? I wonder if you could sort of expand on on that kind of um, uh, lack of transparency in that regard around these schemes. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's been a lot of interest in the idea of carbon offsets. Uh, yeah. So this is what you're describing, which is is where uh, I'm going to grow trees on my land. They're going to store carbon. You're emitting carbon, and I'll sell some some credit to you so that you can emit that carbon. The the problem has always been that uh, we call it additionality. How can you prove that you're doing something additional to what would have happened otherwise? Whether it's growing those trees or whether I'm protecting a forest that would have been logged otherwise. Oh yeah, I would. If you're if you're going to pay me a million dollars to say that I would have cut down on my forest if you didn't give me a million dollars, I'm going to say that. But how do we prove it? It's actually not something that that I mean, as a pure matter of sort of basic scientific logic, we can't prove what would have happened otherwise. Yeah. So we're always we're we're always making assumptions, and this is one of the reasons why uh, I've become pretty skeptical of the idea of of this sort of market based trading and offsets between the forest sectors and other sectors. I think that we should be pursuing nature based climate solutions. So we should be growing more trees, trying to incentivize people to grow trees. But thinking about it as something that we can trade off with other sectors is problematic because we just don't know what, have, what would have happened otherwise. So one of the things I say is, you know, I'll use the example of here in the US, we have got a lot of private forestry and we'd like to incentivize more people to grow trees. Well, if we just provide some kind of payment to everyone who grows trees, or who grows trees in a certain way. We don't have to worry about additionality. We're saying we're going to subsidize the forest sector because it's beneficial. And we're not worrying about whether those trees that you planted would have grown otherwise. We're just providing an overall incentive to this structure. But we get into a lot of trouble when we want to say, well, you grew this much more than you would have if I hadn't given you this money. It's not something that you can ever prove. I've gotten into a few arguments, you know, uh, the state of California has gone in the direction of these trading markets and they say, well, we have a system which we think on average is accounting for this. And then there's critics who say that it's not. Um, I, I, I would, would say I'm, I'm not in a, the right position to judge, but as a matter of pure logic, I can never know what would have happened otherwise. And that's that's just a fundamental problem for these trading schemes. Yeah, I suppose what's what you're getting at here is that those assumptions are not technical or scientific. They're economic, political, financial, business oriented. So, so you know, I I think that um, we're we're always making us we're always when we're when we're dealing with these kinds of claims. We're always making assumptions about what would have happened otherwise that are that are politically motivated, that are motivated by a desire to make money, and that we can never prove. Mm -hmm. And so so I'm always going to be a little bit uncomfortable with those. Um, because I'm never going to know if 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 it's if it's really improving the forest or if it's just people doing what they would have done otherwise. Yeah. Um Forrest, um, your paper really packs a punch for me. I thought it was fantastic, and it, it was um, it taught me something. It will teach our listeners something. Has it been? How's it been received in in the wider sort of uh, industries? Has there been any groups or institutions that have that have contacted you or that you've contacted that have really looked at that paper and you know fed back and said we didn't. See it in that way. Thank you for letting us know. And, and now trying to change what they do. And, and I'm wondering if it's, if it's a similar analogy to the, um, to the forest man management um, is that, you know, I often find that papers like this are very front-loaded academic pieces of work, yeah? And when they come out, that energy seems to dissipate quite rapidly and nobody's really thought of the back end. Now, I would hate to, to see this sort of knowledge sort of dissipate what are you guys doing to get this message out to to institutions that need to hear it and need to change? 
Yeah, well, I I I mean, I think the first thing I'll say is uh, some of us became scientists because we weren't good at talking to normal people. Um, So, so, (laughs) you know, I think I think it takes some team effort and and uh, and I'm trying to build those relationships and spread the word about that. Um, And I, I think the message is getting out there a lot. I'm not the only person doing it. In fact, this was sort of, there've been a flurry of somewhat similar papers making somewhat similar points. Um, And some of them are coming out of academics, but some of them are coming out of, you know, uh, I talk now to scientists in the Nature Conservancy and and other um, really big conservation organizations that are sort of saying, yeah, we're looking at this in our programs and we're trying to make sure, we're trying to make sure that we're doing this right. We're trying to work with policymakers in India where, we, where we've done a lot of work documenting sort of the failures. We're trying to work with them. One of my colleagues who, who's in the government of India has created some, some like smartphone-based applications to help people identify where are there really good places to plant trees? I'm walking in the field. I think maybe this is a good place to plant a tree. Let's see what the data says. Um, so, so we're trying to build that up across multiple levels. Unfortunately, I think that there's, so I think that there's a building current that's saying, let's do this better. Unfortunately, I also think there's a building current to let's just scale this up r- really rapidly and not think too much about the details. Yeah, definitely. There, there have been some really, you know, at the, at the, the COP in Glasgow in November, um, there were some really big pledges made for, for reforestation, for, for stopping deforestation. And it's wonderful that people want to do this, but you look at the, the people who are making these pledges and sort of what they're saying they're going to do. And it's wildly out of, what they can actually do. And the yeah. only way that they could actually do something would be to sort of do it really sloppily. And so I worry about that a lot. Yeah, um, I, I worry that there's going to be a lot of really poorly thought through programs that are not, people are going to spend money, uh, particularly some of these big corporate pledges where there's, you know, huge, huge corporations. Some of the airlines are making these pledges. We're going to just pour money into planting trees and, there aren't competent organizations that can take that money and translate that, that into results yeah. all over the world waiting for the money. They're going to have to do a lot of, it's, it's going to take a lot of groundwork to make that possible. So I think some of this is really going to, I'm worried about what the outcomes will be. Yeah, yeah. 100%. And I'm wondering as well if it's kind of a psychological barrier, if it falls into a category that it's a bit like recycling now, I've had conversations with people in depth, yeah, smart people in depth as to why recycling is not the answer to climate breakdown. But it, but because it's so intuitive, yeah, and something that they do on a daily basis, I've heard, I've had conversations with people and six months later, I've heard them talking about recycling as though it's the, it's the best thing you can do, despite the fact that I'd already spoken to them six months before. And I'm wondering if tree planting is going to fall into this psychological problem where it seems so intuitive that you just, tramp, uh, you just plant trees and that's going to solve everything. That I'm wondering if there's also a psychological barrier that we have to get over. I, I, I say that sometimes I think that, that, that tree planting has become the term has just become a stand-in for doing something good for nature. Yeah. And, exactly. and, and, and it can be something very good for nature. A few people have taken me as some of the things I've written as saying like, Oh, tree planting is bad. I don't think tree planting is bad at all. Um, but planting the right tree in the right place and taking care of it is good. Planting the wrong tree in the wrong place is bad. So, so, but it, but it does have this sort of resonance in our, in our culture as being about like, Oh, that's just doing something good. Genuinely, do you think that there is a psychological element to it? That we, there's a part of our brain that puts it puts these safe, intuitive things, and I just worry that that's going to be one of them. Um, is there anything? It's no pun intended, but is there any low hanging fruit for countries like the UK and the US, where if you could say do this and do it tomorrow because this will be beneficial. Is there anything obvious that, that high emitting countries like the UK 
and the US should do tomorrow. You know, I've got the funds and the, the, the know-how to do tomorrow to make an impact, a positive impact. Is there anything there, Forrest, that we can demand today? Well, you know, I, I think that the, the low-hanging fruit are, are not in, in my field. They're not in forestry. I think they're, they're in the application of already existing scaling up already existing technologies that are vastly more energy efficient than the technologies that we have, but that have high initial capital costs. And so the example that I use sometimes, um, you know, electric cars, uh, you know, my friend has a Tesla. It costs twice as much as my car, uh, but it's cheaper to operate, but I can't afford the upfront costs. Um, you know, Heat pumps, everyone in my city has a gas furnace. We're kind of marginal for heat pumps. It gets pretty darn cold here. Um, but most of the U.S. And, and all of the U.K., you don't need a gas, a gas furnace anymore. Heat pumps are better. They're, they use less energy. They can even be more comfortable. But they cost more up front than a gas furnace. Yeah. I, I got rid of my gas water heater. I have a heat pump water heater now in my basement and it works great, but it costs, it costs twice as much as, as, the, as the equivalent gas model. So, so there's a whole bunch of technologies out there where just providing people with the financing to say, you know, my heat pump water heater uses almost no energy. It's amazing how little energy it uses. But it cost me twice as much up front. Now I could afford that, but I can't afford I can't afford a heat pump on my house, actually. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely with the heat pumps. I'd say more integrated transport than uh, electric cars myself personally, but uh, yeah, and would you definitely on the heat pumps? Yeah, Forrest, you mentioned the US and I, I wondered slightly tangentially if you could maybe describe to our listeners in the UK how climate change is playing out in Minnesota? Yeah, well, I'll start with the forest sector, which is the one that I interact with the most. So in Minnesota, uh, Minnesota is basically a giant swamp. Uh, you may have heard our, our state <laughs> slogan is 10,000 lakes, but we actually have something like 13 or 14,000 lakes in the state. Wow. Cool. And most of the land in between the lakes is kind of marshy. So a lot of our forests are growing uh, on wetlands, in wetlands. And so a lot of our forests are managed for wood production. Good sustainable management. I think Minnesota does a great job with sort of long-term thinking, sustainable forestry. But you can only get, a, get a, a tractor or a skidder or whatever machine you need to pull the wood out. You can only get into those wetlands when they're really frozen solid. And it used to be that you could kind of reliably get in there four months a year. It would just be so cold from December 1 to, you know, March 31st. Everything would be frozen solid. Well, it's December, what is it, December 2nd today that we're doing this interview. And, you know, I, I was out jogging. People were wearing T-shirts. Wow. So the ground isn't going to freeze. I don't know how much longer it'll take, but at least a couple weeks. So... Now we've only got maybe three months or two and a half months to do those forestry operations we used to do. And that's going to have downstream impacts. We're not going to get the wood out. We're also not going to have the wood available for those mills. So that's a really um, a simple example. Um, we're also seeing uh, we had a, a really severe drought last summer that was tied to climate influences. Um, a lot of lost crops because of that. And and. Uh, we're also uh, in the in the long run. We're looking at a scenario with increased forest fire, um, yeah, pests, forest pests like the one I mentioned, the emerald ash borer. Emerald ash borer gets killed if the temperature goes below minus thirty Fahrenheit. I can't quickly do that in my head to Celsius, but that's really cold, right? But most of Minnesota used to get down to minus 30 every, every winter. The ash borer is moving north and killing the ash trees as the winters get milder. Right. So, so we, we're, we're kind of getting an intersecting set of, um, and, and I think somewhat similar to Europe, you know, we had just like brutal hot dry spell this summer, way out of the norm. 
And, and people here don't have air conditioning in their homes because they never needed it. Yeah. And sort of maybe similar to the heat, heat spells you've had in Europe in, in the last few years. So there's, there's a lot of direct human suffering as a result of that because people don't have the adaptations. Yeah, and it's the vicious cycle, isn't it? Because once the air conditioning comes in, well, that gives off even more carbon. And it just it just increases the problem, doesn't it? So we get we get stuck into these death spirals. Um, is Minnesota a, a red state or a blue state? We are are one of the most purple states. Oh, purple. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll say uh, we have in the. I think the last time a Republican was elected to statewide office was. 12 or 16 years ago. But if you look like, uh, I think Biden won by 51%. Hillary won by 50.5%. You know, it's yeah. pretty close. And our, our state legislature, we have a, a bicameral, a two house legislature. Our state Senate is run by the Republicans. Our state house is run by the, by the Democrats. Yeah. So uh, we we're a state that at this point only operates when both parties can agree on something. Yeah. So from the outside looking in, we obviously we see the forest fires that look like, you know, hell on earth. And we also we see, you you know, you're hit by storms that just we don't see over here, you, you know, in, in the UK. And yet it is still a fairly sceptical, well, this is the impression we get. Please, you know, I hope you're going to tell me I'm completely wrong. But the impression we get is that the US is still a very sceptical climate nation. Is it? Is it? skeptical despite what you see what what they go through year on year out well i i think there's a lot of variation so i'll first say before i moved to minnesota i lived for a few years in texas and and i mentioned you know earlier in the interview but you you go out talk to farmers in texas they'll say oh yeah man we just had the worst drought i've ever experienced even my grandparents didn't have such a bad drought but it wasn't climate change it's okay. just that there's variation. Um, you know, in Texas, there might be a lot of motivated reasoning, reasoning mm -hmm. because Texas is, of course, one of the world's great oil producers. Mm -hmm. um, although it's also one of the world's great solar and wind producers. I mean, Texas has really got amazing renewable resources as well. Um, when I talk to people in in Minneapolis and St. Paul, the cities that I live in, you know, the people who live in the urban areas, we're all worried and everyone's trying to do something. Um, I think that there's a big divide in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, this has been covered in the press that there's an urban rural divide. Um, I think there's a lot of people who are really scared and really worried and trying to do something. But there's a big audience out there for Climate change isn't real. It's just a conspiracy. It's a conspiracy to take away our way of life. I won't be able to drive my big truck anymore. So it's a conspiracy. Um, it's an attack on our way of life. And, and so, I mean, honestly, I, I, it's, not, it's not what I study. So I, I, feel, I just feel a little overwhelmed by it. It's only gotten worse in my lifetime. What the skepticism? Yeah, the skepticism oh. and people are just dug in. So yeah. even when they, you know, if you, you'll talk to people out West where there are these huge fires and they'll say, oh, no, it wasn't climate change. It's because we haven't been doing enough logging. Right. And there's yeah. some truth yeah. to that. It's not crazy. I mean, yeah. There, yeah. There's, there's always a kernel of truth. Yeah, that there's a kernel of truth in that. Um, but it's definitely partly due to climate. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um... Mate, you know, whether it's coincidence or destiny, you know, the fact that you call forest um, has not gone unnoticed. But listen, fantastic work. Uh, please carry on doing what you're doing and get that message out there. Um, you know, we follow you on social media. We're going to keep a close eye on, on, on the work that you do. But it's been fascinating tonight and I hope the audience will appreciate, you know, your knowledge. So thank you so much for, for coming on. And um, yeah, great work, mate. Okay, this is the part of the show that's dedicated to the fighters, the healers and the conservers of the world that are doing their bit for all of us. It's the shout out. Forrest, who have you got for us this time? Well, uh, Dan Brockington is, is a researcher who's a real, I would say, a hero of mine. He works at the University of Sheffield, so in, in your neck of the woods. Yeah. And he's, been, he's been doing great research for decades 
and also advocacy, uh, looking at people who are harmed by by uh, by conservation and and nature protection, and how can we do this better? Brilliant. At the University of Manchester, I've I've been working lately with Johan Oldekup and okay. Rose Pritchard, who are doing similar work. They're more junior people at, at sort of my level, and they're doing really great work. So if if people there in Manchester or in the UK are looking for for uh, some real heroes in terms of scholarship in the area of natural climate solutions, uh, forestry. Those are people that they can get in touch with locally. Brilliant. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you for that, Forrest. My shout out this week goes to Yvonne Hope, who is the CEO of a homeless charity in Manchester called Barnabas. Um, Yvonne put the book English Pastoral by James Rebank into my hand and said that I had to read it. It's a book I wouldn't have picked up usually, but I was so glad that I did read it because it was absolutely fantastic and talks all about the history of, of farming, how it went from traditional farming to a more intensive uh, consumer uh, period. And then he rediscovered sort of the beauty and, and importance of biodiversity. So fantastic recommendation by Yvonne. My shout out this week goes to the African Pot Project, or TAP for short a community-led initiative to collectively fund services for diasporic Africans in local communities. TAP, a beneficiary of the Black Heritage Fund, is currently fundraising for its ecotherapy walking project here in Manchester. It's hoping to organise approximately 10 hike trips and activities for up to a total of 150 young black people from central Manchester. Through access to these outdoor, high-energy activities, which many of these young people won't have access to due to disadvantage, TAP hopes to combat loneliness and social exclusion. It's a wonderful project that really resonates with us on the podcast, and we'd love it if you could donate to them today at the link in our show notes. Thank you. Okay, and a big thank you to everyone that is listening. And remember, if you're helping the planet in any way, we love you, we appreciate you, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Take care, everyone. Bye. We'd like to thank all our supporters on Patreon, with a special thanks to Barbara Burke, Guillermund and Angela Brown. If you're enjoying the show and want to help it grow, but not in an infinite ecological disaster kind of way, head to patreon.com forward slash mcrgndpod.